I invite you to open your Bibles this morning to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. We have just been through the stoning of Stephen, and now we will see in its aftermath that a great persecution breaks out. What has happened here will change the church forever. One of their own has been killed for proclaiming Jesus as the Christ. So, emboldened, the enemies of the gospel now go on a persecution rampage. So great is the persecution that the pathways for discipleship of large group worship, of Bible fellowships, of small groups, as we have seen that the first church embraced, that we embrace here at East White Oak, that those pathways for discipleship are broken up and a large number of believers have to leave. Question, will we find joy here? Will we find joy? I assure you that we will. Let's look at it. Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 8. Please stand for the reading of God's word this morning. And Saul approved of his, that's Stephen's, execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did, for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Please have a seat. We're making our way through Acts uh, for lessons in, from the first church. We're looking specifically at the church in Jerusalem, a story of glory and challenge. And in verses 1 through 3, we see the beginning of great persecution of the church. May I suggest to you that the default position of the church is one of being persecuted? For many years, and I would, I would actually say for generations, that has not been so in our own nation. And yet, if you look at church history, you will have to conclude that the default position, the more normal position for believers in Jesus Christ is to suffer persecution of one kind or another. It says here at the beginning of chapter 8 that Saul approved of all that had happened. I suggested to you last Sunday that he was the fellow who 
when they laid their coats at his feet, it wasn't just he was coat check guy, but he was actually doing some of the administrating of the stoning, kind of in charge of making sure that the young guys who were engaged in it did it out of his rage against the gospel. In fact, in Acts chapter 22, verse 20, uh, he shares his remorse at his role in this. Uh, I'll, I'll just read it for you here. Paul is describing his own testimony of how he came to Christ. And he says, when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself, so he's really emphasizing, I was there. I was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. It may be that uh, Paul is a key source for Luke for the events surrounding Stephen. Saul was much more aggressive than his mentor Gamaliel. Gamaliel had said, "Ah, let's just let this thing fizzle out on its own. You know, these things come up and they go away and they come up and go away. This is another thing that's going to come up and it's just going to go away. Let's not give it much, uh, much attention. The more attention we give it, the greater the threat is of it actually growing. So let's just leave it alone. Saul had a different tack, a different approach. His approach was, let's root it out and destroy it wherever it's to be found. Now, in verse, in verse 1, we find out a great persecution arose on that day. That is, the very day that Stephen was stoned, this great persecution came upon the church. Now, persecution sometimes happens little by little, doesn't it? Uh, We've seen that so far in Acts, Acts chapter 4, verses 18 and 21. Uh, The Jewish leadership commanded Peter and John uh, to not speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. That gets a little bit expanded in chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, where there's the arrest of all the apostles, and yet they miraculously are freed from prison and go back to the Temple Mount to teach some more. It expands this persecution yet further in the second arrest of the apostles in Acts 5, 29, 33, and 40. It expands yet further into conspiracy and even the development of false witnesses to testify in Acts chapter 6, verses 10 to 13. And it expands a little bit further into rage and the stoning of Stephen in Acts 7, 54 and 57 and 58. So those are persecutions that happen little by little. But now, the persecution makes a great leap. All at once, on the very day of Stephen's stoning, there is a great persecution, not of Peter and John, not of the apostles, not of a select deacon named Stephen, but rather a great persecution of the whole church in Jerusalem. It's called a great persecution. Great in what sense? I think it is great in the sense of its extent. The focus up until now had been very narrow, and now it expands to more and more people. In fact, it says... They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. 
By all, Luke doesn't intend to say every single person except the apostles was scattered. Uh, We know that that didn't happen. What he means is that the church as a whole was scattered and moved out of the city of Jerusalem. Why could the apostles stay? It says all were scattered except the apostles. Well, perhaps they were too well known in order to get their hands on them. Perhaps there was a Hellenistic Jewish emphasis in the persecution, and these were the apostles were all uh, Hebraic Jews. Um, It may simply be that they were no longer after leaders, but the nature of the persecution shifted to say, well, if we can't stop the leaders, let's get the followers, and that will eliminate the, the leadership because, by definition, leaders are when there's people following them. So let's get the followers. Regardless of what the reason was, there was this grace persecution that came out on the whole church. Don't comfort yourself that you will escape persecution when persecution is focused on a few. That's often just a precursor for expansion. You know, you sometimes think, well, they're picking on that guy, but eh, it's not me. It's not me. It's not me. I remember... uh, Uh, the quote from Martin Niemöller, a Lutheran pastor at the time of the Nazi regime in Germany, who wrote this, in Germany they came first for the communists, and I didn't speak up because I wasn't a communist. Then they came for the Jews, and I didn't speak up because I wasn't a Jew. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I didn't speak up because I wasn't a trade unionist. Then they came for the Catholics, and I didn't speak up because I was a Protestant. And then they came for me. By that time, no one was left to speak up for me. We see here the scattering of believers throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. There is a loss of the pathways of discipleship that I will note in detail in just a few moments. One thing that's interesting is when persecution breaks out, the things that you thought were super important questions of the day, all of a sudden don't have that high degree of importance. What happened to the impoverished widows that needed to be fed and the distribution of food? All of a sudden, when your life is on the line, that question, as important as it is, becomes a secondary one. And it says that they are scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. This is an inadvertent obedience to Jesus' commission from Acts chapter 1 verse 8. Up until this point, the church was focused on its glory of God and worship of God, making Jesus known in the environs and the city of Jerusalem. Jesus had called them. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you'll be witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so what is happening now is that the church is being scattered out into villages all throughout Judea and Samaria. Notice in verse 2, devout people bury Stephen and a great lamentation over him happened. It says they bury Stephen and made great lamentation over him. Don't miss this. 
the word great is described in verse 1 as a great persecution, and in verse 2, we have a great lamentation. The first church is hurting. Great persecution, great lamentation. These courageous uh, Jewish men bury Stephen. Uh, the Jewish law was that executed people should be buried, but prohibited public lamentation over them. For these men to do so in the face of such persecution was courageous indeed. Perhaps we may even call it defiant. Now, I'm going to take a little bit of time to back up to Stephen's stoning because I, I want you to understand that all of the rules that should have been in place for the stoning of Stephen were not followed even by the Jewish leadership. There's a record of the laws of the Jewish leadership of this time that have, were formulated a couple of hundred years later in something called the Mishnah. And in the Mishnah, there are specific prescriptions for how to go about the trial for a person who would be stoned and the stoning of a person. Let me describe some of the things that happen so that you'll understand how Stephen's stoning was absolutely against even their own uh, regulations and rules. First, the trial process. Let's think about the trial process that wasn't followed. According to the Mishnah, uh, there was to be an inquiry of witnesses with the date of offense, the identification of the offender. Was he warned? Is he an idolater? What did he worship and in what manner did he worship? You don't see that anywhere in Acts 7. There was the more that a judge examined evidence, the more praiseworthy the judge is. How closely did they examine the evidence? Not very closely. When witnesses contradicted one another, the evidence was nullified. The judges would go away after the trial in pairs to deliberate with little food and no wine, and they would discuss the matter thoroughly for the whole night and rise early to deliver their verdict in the morning. Was that followed? It was not. Those who, before they had gone away to deliberate, who had argued for conviction, could change their minds to acquittal. But if you argued for acquittal before you went away overnight to deliberate, to change your mind to conviction, you weren't allowed to do that. Because the default position was to not put someone to death. The majority ruled in these cases, but if there was one vote of difference, you had to keep adding to the number of, of deliberators up to the full Sanhedrin of 71, and if that's one vote apart, in other words, if the vote was 36 to 35, even in favor of conviction, that worked for acquittal. You had to get at least a majority of two to get a conviction. That's the trial process that wasn't followed. And then the stoning process wasn't followed either. There's what I call the horse and scarf procedure. What would happen is, as they were leading the convicted person from the court to the place of stoning, he was followed by a, um, uh, a horse, a person on a horse, who had a scarf. And if in the process there was any evidence 
that was presenting as the accused was being taken away to execution. They would wave the scarf and they'd take the accused back on the horse back to deliberate more. And they would do that as often as was necessary in order to make sure that things were filed. There's, there's no horse and scarf here in Acts 7. There is a crier who makes an announcement. Stephen, son of so-and-so, is going forth to be stoned because he has committed such and such a transgression, and the following are his witnesses, and they give the name. And if anyone knows anything in favor for his acquittal, let him come and argue on his behalf. That's what the crier would say. There's no crier in Acts 7. When they get at least 15 feet away from the stoning, the condemned is offered a chance to confess to his crime. And if a person doesn't know how to confess, they tell them what to repeat. They say, repeat after us. May my death be an atonement for all my sins. The place of stoning was about 10 to 11 feet high. One of the witnesses was to push the condemned down by his hips, face up, if he died in the fall, fine. But if he's still alive, a second witness took a stone and dropped it on his heart. And if he's still alive, then all the rest joined in. And blasphemers and idolaters were hanged after they were stoned. Stephen is convicted of blasphemy, and yet there's no testimony that after his stoning, he was hanged. The body had to be buried by sunset. The stones and the gallows are buried with the condemned. And the burial place is not with the community. There were two other burial places. One for those who were beheaded and strangled and another for those who were stoned and bur or burned. The order of severity of execution within Jewish uh, jurisprudence was stoning was the worst and then burning, beheading, and strangling. Aren't you glad to know that? Once the body had decayed, the family could take the bones and put them in the family burial place, but only on this condition. They had to greet the judges in the case and the witnesses, and they had to declare to the judge, judges and the witnesses that they did not hold anything against them and that they had rendered a true verdict. Only then could they get the bones of their family. And the family could not observe public mourning they were allowed to grieve only in their hearts. No seven days of mourning, no rending of the garments. So you see, all of that to say, in this one little sentence, devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, you see a remarkable difference from the way that stonings happened within the time frame that we're talking about here. Now in contrast, verse 3, in contrast to these devout men, Saul was ravaging the church. Ravaging means damaging, spoiling, trying to destroy. One of the ways that I thought of this word is, you know how when you take a piece of paper and you put it into a paper shredder? Right? That's what Saul's wanting to do to the church. Just shred the church. Just ravage and destroy it he actually set up an organizational apparatus to destroy the church by destroying its instituted pathways of discipleship. Look at verse 3. He was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. This doesn't mean that you, you and your wife and your two kids are sitting in your house and Saul and his guys knock on the door and they grab you and take you off, uh, take off with you. That may have happened, but what, what Saul was really after were groups of people who were meeting in homes. 
That phrase house to house is used in the Bible, especially in Acts 2, to describe the pathways of discipleship. They met for large group worship in the Temple Mount. They met for Bible fellowship in small groups from house to house. Interestingly, today, if we told Christians that they could not meet together in Bible fellowships or small groups, there are many people who would not even notice that there was such a thing as persecution. This house after house is not so much a pursuit of believers in the privacy of their homes, though that could have happened. These houses were meeting places for believers in the pathways of discipleship. They were centers of teaching and evangelism. In view of how the first church functioned, Paul was organizing teams to go to homes where believers were meeting in Bible fellowships and small groups and dragging people off to prison. And I think we all can understand well the terror that this sort of action may have brought to the church. You see, Saul did not see believers in Jesus as misguided in need of correction. He saw them as enemies and blasphemers, deliberately teaching false doctrine about Jesus being God and having been raised from the dead. So too today, I think we are seeing more and more Opponents to Christianity and the gospel of Christ are no longer seeing Christians as misguided in need of correction, but rather seeing Christians as enemies who need to be destroyed. Well, let's look next at this great persecution leads to much joy. Because at this point, if we ended the message right now, we just feel really bleh. What, what in the world? This is awful. And persecution indeed is awful. And yet, it leads to joy. Verse 4, the great commission is revisited. Those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Now, when you see the word preaching, don't think somebody standing up behind a pulpit preaching. The word preaching means heralding. That means every believer, wherever they went, was going about telling others about Jesus. They were heralding the gospel of Jesus Christ. Every believer was doing this. Up to this point, the outreach of the first church had been very localized, but with the great persecution, followers of Jesus are scattered, and wherever they go, they herald the word. Up to this point, the leaders of the church had been the proclaimers of the gospel message. Now, believers in general assume the work of proclamation. Luke describes this as a natural thing for Christ followers. Wherever they go, they proclaim Christ. That's what a Christian does. And now in verse 5, we're introduced to a second deacon who had been tasked with organizing the distribution of food to widows. His name is Philip. Luke may have heard what he's about to write in Acts chapter 8 about Philip. He may have learned it from Philip himself because in Acts 21.8, we learn that Luke actually stayed at Philip's house for a few days when Philip was living in a town called uh, Caesarea. Fascinating to think about, isn't it? Luke sitting there in the house, having a 
meal with Philip and hearing the story here. And then Luke says that he takes the accounts from eyewitnesses and compares them to write down the true account of what actually happened. Philip doesn't merely do the job that he's been assigned by the church, which is distributing food to Hellenistic Jewish widows. He too is an evangelist. Verse 5, he went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. That is, he's proclaiming Jesus as the anointed one, the king. He's also, just like Stephen, one who performs signs and wonders. So if you compare Acts 6, 8, and 10, you'll see Stephen is an evangelist and performs signs and wonders, and Philip in chapter 8, verses 5 and 6, is an evangelist who performs signs and wonders. And he goes down to Samaria. Now, I need to give you a little bit of the history and the trouble of Samaria. 800 years before this, the nation of Assyria had come and conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. And these Assyrians had as a strategy the deportation of the peoples of the land that they conquered and replacing them with peoples of other lands that they had conquered. So they took people from over here and they moved them into the northern area of Israel. They took people from the northern area of Israel and moved them off to other places in their empire. As a result, you had these foreigners that came into the region of Samaria with their own worship uh, habits and gods and idols and all the rest, and they mix in with the Jewish people who are still remaining in the land, and they develop a what might be termed kind of a weird cult-like Judaism. First of all, they believe that there's only five books of the Bible, the first five books of Moses. That was their Bible. That was it. They also established their own worship pattern so that they weren't worshiping at the temple. They had a, a place up on Mount Gerizim that they sacrificed and worshiped and all the rest of it. And Philip goes to Samaria into this region. And by the way, as a result of that weird cult-like nature of Samaritan religion, Orthodox Jews looked at them with great disdain, really couldn't stand them. So much so that they would often, even if it was more direct route, they'd walk around Samaria in order to get where they were going. Um, and even you see it in John chapter 4 where Jesus meets up with a Samaritan woman. And, and the Samaritan woman says, well, how is it you're talking to me? <laughs> you're, you're Jewish and I'm a Samaritan woman. What, why in the world would you even speak with me? You, know. uh, you see it in Jesus' story where he tells uh, a man fell among thieves and a priest walks by and leaves him alone. And then a, a, a Levite walks by and leaves him alone then a, a Samaritan comes and has compassion on him. It's kind of an upside-down story that Jesus tells there. So, uh, Philip goes to Samaria. Perhaps there are still some followers of Jesus from uh, the Samaritan's woman's account from John chapter 4. In any event, Philip proclaims to them the Christ. This proclamation is a heralding, an announcement. We have the Messiah. 
and we read in verse 6, crowds of people gather. They are of one accord. That is, there's an unusual unity of embracing this message. In a land where there is lots of division, lots of frustration, which by the way, exists still to this day in Samaria, the parts of the West Bank where that exists. I mean, it's really kind of tense all the time. But here, an unusual granting by the Spirit of God of one accord, an unusual unity of embracing this message because of what they heard, the gospel of Jesus, and because of what they saw, the signs that he did. Unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them. Now, one more note on that. Um, Generally, where the scriptures are accepted and embraced, demons don't come. So you will look pretty much in vain for the idea of, of, of evil spirits in the environs of Jerusalem. Even where they aren't following the Bible correctly. They're just honoring the Bible as God's word. The demons don't go there. But elsewhere in uh, the region... When you find Jesus or the apostles casting out demons, they are in places where demons have been welcomed. And so is it any wonder that in Samaria, where there is this mixing of religions and religious practice, that you would also find the activity of evil spirits. And so, uh, Philip, as part of the ministry in the apostolic period, is is driving out these unclean spirits. And many who are paralyzed or lame were healed. And so, in the midst of this awful, trying, first in their lives experience of persecution, which ought to bring only anxiety, what is the result? I love how Luke says it in just a very brief sentence in verse 8. So, there was much joy in that city. Consider where we started this chapter and where we are in eight short verses. From the death of Stephen to the scattering of the church and now to the great joy of new peoples embracing the good news about Jesus. This is exactly how God has worked everywhere. So let's think about some applications for us. I have four of them. First, sometimes God puts us in places we do not plan in order to accomplish his work. Sometimes God puts us in places we do not plan in order to accomplish his work. I I don't know about you, but sometimes I get frustrated when things don't work out according to my plan. Like somehow God is less on his throne when things don't work out according to my plan. That's not true. Sometimes God puts us in places where we have not planned in order to accomplish his work. God put the followers of Jesus in this moment of persecution to scatter them in order to accomplish his work. Now, let me add a little bit of my uh, personal opinion. This is just personal opinion. I think that there is within the community of believers, the notion that, yeah, I accept that God does that, but God's doing that in some kind of a mean way. 
you know, you'll hear somebody say, well, I really didn't want to ever live in Indianapolis, and wouldn't you know it, God put me in Indianapolis, you know, something like that. And I think that that's kind of a statement that doubts the goodness of God. God somehow giving us what we don't want in order to accomplish his purposes does not mean that God is looking and seeing what things we like and don't like and make sure that we get the things we don't like in order to put us in our place. No, God is so good. Jesus himself says, if, if a man asks for bread, is, he gonna give, is God going to give a stone? If he asks for uh, a, a fish, is he going to give him a snake? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven. So don't think that when things don't go according to your plan, that God's somehow putting you in your place. What he's doing is he's putting you in places in order to accomplish his work. Second application. Sometimes what looks like disaster actually turns out to advance the gospel. The intention of persecutors like Saul was to wipe out Christianity. Instead, their persecution served to expand Christianity wider than even the church believed possible. Consider these verses in Acts 11, verses 19 and 20, where Luke is talking about this same persecution that, came, that happened right after Stephen was killed. Here's what Luke says. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, that is the Greeks, the Gentiles also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So think of this. What looks like disaster is turning out to advance the gospel and Christianity wider than even the church believed possible. It went to Phoenicia. I wish I had a little moment to tell you about Phoenicia. It's where all the Canaanites ran when Joshua conquered the promised land. So the Phoenicians are those Canaanites that, that, uh, that, that Joshua drove out. They're coming to Jesus. Cyprus. Do you know where Barnabas comes from? He comes from Cyprus. Antioch is the church that is the main base in Asia Minor from which the gospel goes all over the globe, including Europe. Antioch is the place from which the first missionaries, Paul and Barnabas, were sent. And not only are they speaking the word to Jews, there's some, verse 20 of Acts 11, that say, and now they're going to the Gentiles. Unheard of on the part of the church in Jerusalem that this could ever happen, and now the gospel is spreading farther than they ever dreamed. What looks like disaster actually turns out to advance the gospel. Third application. The task of heralding the good news is not just for officers of the church. All of these people who were scattered went out heralding the good news. What was once P 
Peter and John and the apostles' job ended up becoming more people like Philip and Stephen, which becomes more people like everybody. Every believer is now a herald, an announcer of the good news of Jesus. Last application. Persecution can grow the church. It can. But only if the church responds correctly. We are in a very unique time in the history of the world. We have experienced a peculiar suffering. The church of the future will write our history if the Lord tarries. A question for you, what will the church of the future write of us? That we were wrapped up in our personal peace and the maintenance of our lifestyles? that we were more concerned about defending ourselves and our political positions than we were in the worship of our Savior and proclaiming Him everywhere, that we were frustrated by masks, either by the wearing of them or the not wearing of them, but kept our mouths shut about Christ, about heaven and hell, about how to be saved from sin. Let the future church say of us, not that we made much of our suffering, but that we made much of our Savior. Not that we made much ado about masks, but we made much of our Master. Not that we took offense at our various persecutions, but that we went on the offensive to herald the person of Jesus Christ the King of kings and the Lord of lords. When that happens, there will be much joy in that city. Father, we do pray that you may help us to make the most of the opportunities that we have before us. We know you put us in places that we don't plan for in order to accomplish your work. We know that what looks like disaster can actually turn out to advance the gospel. We know you've given all of us the task of heralding the good news. And we know that hardship and persecution can grow the church, but if we respond correctly. Lord, help us to make much of Christ. Help us to make much of our Master. Help us to make much of our Savior, Jesus Christ. In His name we pray. Amen. It's so precious that we now can enter a time of reflection and a meal, as it were, of remembering the Lord's death. Jesus Christ left us these elements to remind us of what He did for us. His body was broken for us, Isaiah 53, 6. We all like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The element of the cup that represents his blood is revealed to us in 1 John 1, 7. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, purifies us from all sins. These elements do not save us. They don't forgive us of our sins, but they remind us of what our Lord Jesus 
did for us. And so this morning, as we take up the bread and the cup, let us do so in the fellowship with one another of joy of knowing Jesus as our Savior. If you have never placed your faith and hope in Jesus Christ, and you're still on the way to that, you can do it right now before these elements are distributed, before you take up these elements. Just say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner and cannot save myself. I know you died on the cross to forgive me of my sin. Please give to me by your grace the eternal life you promise all who believe in you. I believe you died, you were buried, On the third day, you rose again from the dead, and so I believe that you will take me to be with you forever. If you make that kind of a profession of faith, then you can take these elements with joy and worship that Jesus is your Savior. If you're not ready to make that commitment of faith, we'd encourage you to just not participate in order that, as 1 Corinthians 11 says, that you would not heap condemnation on yourself. So just let them pass you by. And if you've got further questions about Christ and the gospel, I or any of our pastors would be delighted to be able to visit with you and talk that through with you. Jesus really is the Savior of the world, and he's calling all people everywhere to turn away from their sin and to turn to him in faith. And so on the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread. And after he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, take and eat. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. What more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy wandering about in deserts and mountains and in caves and dens of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided, had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with perseverance 
the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. After supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes again. Father, we would ask that when the history of the present day church is written, like these saints from Hebrews 11, may they boast that we were at the ready, ready to follow you, Lord Jesus, wherever you take us with joy. In Jesus' name, amen.